Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Ropes and Gray Tech Studio podcast. I'm Andrew Thomases. I'm one of the co-chairs of the Technology, Media, and Telecom Industry Group here at Ropes and Gray. And today we have with us Emily Carlberg, who's counsel in Ropes and Gray's Intellectual Property Transaction Specialty Group, and she's resident in our San Francisco and Silicon Valley offices. Welcome, Emily. Hi, Andrew. It's so nice to be with you. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. We'd love to have you tell a little bit about your practice to our listeners. What areas do you focus on? Sure. So as you mentioned, I am in the intellectual property transactions subgroup, which sits underneath our strategic transactions practice group. But I, in my career, have really advised clients in every different stage of their life cycle from very early stage startups with no funding to companies who are very mature and doing acquisitions or sales. But at this current point, I I focus primarily on representing private equity investors and strategic inquirers in structuring and negotiating technology acquisitions um, and complex carve-outs and divestiture transactions. So when a business wants to break off a piece of its uh, business lines or product lines or assets and sell them, I help with structuring that. How does intellectual property play in those kind of transactions and what services do you offer the clients with respect to intellectual property? Intellectual property can be really critical in those types of carve-out transactions. Um, A lot of times, companies have what we like to call commingled assets. So they're using their IP trademarks, for example, um, across all of their businesses. So my primary function is to determine what assets are being sold, what assets are being retained, and how we're going to split those up. So what are some examples of the intellectual property that might be split up or acquired in such a transaction? Yeah, it really depends on um, how the transaction is being structured. If you're selling a full business line, if a company is selling off a complete subsidiary of itself, um, oftentimes companies have IP holding companies that house all of their IP assets. And so you have to look at what IP is going to be sold, what's going to be retained, if there's licenses between the acquirer and the seller that need to be put into place. Um, There's all sorts of things, but we recently have been doing a lot of um, software divestitures out on the West Coast. So a company will sell off part of its software. And oftentimes it can get a little hairy when you're doing a software, what's called a software fork, where you're separating the software into basically two copies of itself and a retained entity will keep using the software and an acquiring entity will start using the software. So that division of assets is is particularly interesting. Great. What kind of industries do you work with mostly or frequently? Yeah, mostly clients within some realm of the tech industries. Um, Out on the West Coast, you know, tech is really big here. So I've done quite a few educational technology companies, um, some fintech companies. Um, We're seeing a lot of people in the software and AI space recently um, selling and doing acquisitions. Now, you've mentioned your practice on the West Coast, but you've also practiced on the East Coast, isn't that right? 
Yeah, that's right. I've gone back and forth three or four times now. I, I started my career in New York and then came out to the West Coast. My family is from out here, so um, thought that would be a nice place to land, but wound up uh, heading back east for several years. And then right before the pandemic, we moved back to the East Bay. Great. And so are there any differences or similarities in the, the tech IP transaction space from the East Coast to the West Coast? Yeah, sure. Well, when I was working on the East Coast, tech was sort of in its heyday out there, um, which was really interesting because East Coast is known for having more more old money. You know, they have a lot of financial institutions, a lot of banks, and those old money institutions were really interested in new emerging technologies, as opposed to the West Coast, which has, you know, Silicon Valley has seen a tech boom for some time now. So it was sort of a new frontier on the East Coast for a while where large banks were investing in new companies and new technologies. And then out on the West Coast, you know, we have all the venture capital firms who have been doing this for some time and who are a little bit more mature in their investing strategies. Mm. So uh, when you're working with a, a, a client on these types of transactions, who primarily from the client do you work with or from the um, either the acquirer or the target? Yeah, that's a great question. I do a lot of work with the operations team and the legal counsels to integrate different products, especially for our acquirers when they're buying important technology products or software. Um, we work pretty closely with the operations folks to determine how that technology can be incorporated into a buyer's property that they already own and function, or if it needs to be phased out, um, how that's going to work. I also work quite closely with legal counsel at both um, acquirers and targets, just in terms of structuring and making sure that proper ownership is transferred, intellectual property rights don't have any encumbrances on them. We like to check all the boxes in our diligence, um, and you necessarily need legal counsel to help you do that. Now, I know you've also done work with open source software. Can you explain a little bit more about what that is and the work that you do with clients with open source? Yeah. So open source software is a software component that is freely licensed that virtually any software developer is using in developing their operating systems or proprietary platforms. Now, historically, people felt that there was very little risk of um, being in compliance with open source licenses. Um, there's a lot of licenses that we call permissive licenses. They're easy to operate under. They don't have very strict terms, um, and they were generally unenforced. However, now there are some entities that have been beginning to um, look more closely at how companies are utilizing open source. There have been a few new litigation matters that have been filed that are beginning to open the door to the potential for further enforcement of more viral copyleft licenses that do have restrictions that oftentimes software developers are not paying attention to. So as an advisor for some of our acquirers, we've seen a real uptick in the diligence that acquirers want to do on a target company's use of open source, including things like 
full code scans to ensure that the target is in complete compliance with all of its open source licenses. I have a question, which is what is viral code or copyleft software? Oh, sure. Viral software is open source software subject to a license that may require a developer, if you incorporate the code into your own proprietary code that you're developing, it may require you to redistribute the full proprietary code to the public. So there's a risk when you are using components that are licensed under viral or copyleft licenses that your entire code could be disseminated to the public as a requirement under the license. So if you have a a client who's an acquirer and wants to be sure that that code base is is free and clear, you talked about a code scan. How does one do that? Yeah, there's different ways. Um, Oftentimes, um, for companies that have a huge repository of code, we'll hire out a third-party code scan provider and then attorneys who uh, work on open source issues frequently will have to review the code scan, but it basically entails a company going through line by line of its code and identifying all of the components that they're incorporating into their software um, with the applicable licensing and how the code is being used. It's pretty comprehensive. Sounds like it must be uh, hard to do when you have a, a tight deadline for a transaction to close. Yeah, we actually recommend um, for companies that are thinking they might see a transaction on the horizon that they get out ahead of that and put together their code scan information uh, at the outset so they don't have to you know, scramble when they're in the midst of a transaction. Now, I also know that you do some outsourcing and offshoring IP work. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, we're seeing a lot of software companies recently offshoring some of their development work, um, which can be very uh, cost effective for a lot of reasons. Um, But there are also a number of risks when a company has all of their development um, outside of the U.S. or wherever they're selling their products. So in a recent case um, with a large uh, digital health software provider, they had offshored all of their development to an Indian subsidiary where the Indian entity um, and employees were a pretty critical mass of software developers. The problem was that those software developers were assigning the rights and ownership and the IP to the Indian subsidiary, but then the Indian subsidiary held all the IP and the US subsidiary was entering into contracts with customers. So we had this gap in the chain of title from the Indian subsidiary to the U.S. subsidiary that we had to remediate through putting in place an intercompany license where the Indian subsidiary would transfer the IP over to the U.S. subsidiary so it could use it. The problem we ran into there was that um, the intercompany license triggered some requirements through the Indian tax authorities and a product development tax that wound up being a very significant amount. So companies really do need to be thoughtful and careful with um, where they are offshoring their IP development because in the the short term, it may seem like a cost-effective 
idea to move development outside of the United States, but there can be serious implications, both in tax and um, other fees that you might be incurring from various ex-U.S. jurisdictions. That sounds like a, a great lesson learned. It, and it brings up a question. Do you do you do some counseling rather than just transactions on the IP side? Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. I work quite a bit on licensing transactions, IP advising, analysis of assets, all sorts of different things once a transaction is done or even before the transaction occurs. Right. All right. Now, changing gears a little bit, I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball. What are some of the hot topics that um, are impacting your field as, as we speak? I think the biggest one that probably everybody can't go a day without seeing a new headline about is AI and particularly how AI is being used in businesses. Um, A lot of clients are coming to us for counseling on how they should put up any guardrails around the use of AI within their business, what they should be telling their employees to do, whether they want to start onboarding certain AI products that might increase efficiencies um, in some aspects of their business. And, you know, we we put together focus groups and we have a, um, a working group that is tracking all of these various developments. But unfortunately, I don't think anyone quite knows yet. You know, um, we're going to have to wait and see how, how AI plays out. Um, but I think it's a really exciting time because there's a lot of opportunity with generative AI and AI being used to, you know, develop new data. And, but there's also a lot of risks, right? Um, So we're thinking through how to best um, comply with data privacy law in respect of using AI and how to just ensure that um, employees are properly trained and educated on the use of AI in the workplace and how to evaluate whatever your AI product spits out. And I know that uh, the Ropes and Gray IP transactions teams has worked on some AI policies for some of our clients. Is that right? Yeah, we've worked on quite a few. But again, I think they're a bit more restrictive than they might end up being at a future date. Right now, we're we're generally advising clients to kind of wait and see um, and to use AI as needed, but not to go to go too nuts with it. And I know we continuously update our clients on on evolving AI issues with client alerts and the like. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. We're doing quite a few client alerts, trying to keep everyone apprised of any new updates, whether legal or, you know, new products on the market um, and how those are being used. I want to step back a little bit and get to know you a little bit more as a person. I know you, you started out in education and worked for Teach for America. Uh, how did you go from that to uh, being a lawyer? Oh, that's a great question. When I graduated from college, I got into the Teach for America program. I was a seventh grade English and language arts teacher at a school on the south side of Chicago, which was a really fascinating experience. Obama was the president and he had appointed Arnie Duncan, who was his buddy and the former head of the Chicago Public Schools, um, to be the secretary of education. So the Chicago area was really an interesting place to be an educator. I, my school, though, had a number of problems, and I I wasn't set on being a teacher for the rest of my life. So I went to law school initially thinking I might get into education law, 
but really didn't like it. You know, we we took some tours to the juvenile detention center and that really rubbed me the wrong way. So I did a big switch and moved into transactional um, law pretty quickly and have been here ever since. Great. I love hearing about the paths people have taken to where they currently are. Speaking of paths, from a former New Yorker who's now been in the Bay Area for 28 years, um, uh, I'd certainly have my preference, but uh, what is your preference? East Coast, West Coast? Oh, that's tough. I think I'm... um... I think I am a West Coaster. I was born in Oregon, so you know I, I know the West Coast a little bit better. But there are some things about New York and Boston and the East Coast that I really miss. Mostly things being available at any hour in New York City. You don't have that necessarily in the East Bay, right? No, not so much. I know that you're a bit of a, a basketball fan. What's your team? So we live right up the street from St. Mary's College, um, and the head coach of St. Mary's actually lives a couple houses down from me. So we have become huge Gales fans. I have three little boys, and they are basketball obsessed. But I am I am uh, never going to give up my love of the Portland Trailblazers. I remember Clyde Drexler back in the day. So that's my, that's my team. And how about sports that you play or hobbies you do yourself? Sure. Yeah. Um, I am a former tennis player. I still like to get out on the court as often as I can. Um, but which is less frequent these days, but I also love watching. Um, it's one of my goals to go to all four of the big, the big USTA tournaments. Um, I've been to Wimbledon and the U S open, but I've never done Roland Garros or the Australian. So hopefully soon. Great. Now, if you had your dream vacation where would it be? Oh, sure. My husband is Swedish. So every summer we we jet off to Sweden for a couple of weeks to get our fill. I think probably sitting on one of the islands outside of Stockholm um, in the summertime is really, really lovely. That sounds great. I've never been to Sweden, so I am very jealous. It's so great to hear more about your practice and uh, your personal background. To all of our listeners, Thanks for joining the discussion today. You can go to the Ropes and Gray website for uh, more information about Emily and her practice. Uh, This podcast will be posted on the External Ropes and Gray website, but it will also be available where you normally get your podcasts like Apple, Google, Spotify, and the like. So Emily, thanks so much for joining me and thanks to all of our listeners for listening.